Is creating a melting pot the best way for a society to move forward? What do we gain and what do we lose when we encourage everyone to be similar? Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Inscribing Inclusion. I'm your host, Jocelyn Armstrong. So in today's episode, we're going to talk ever so briefly about why inclusion and assimilation are not the same thing. This idea actually came to me today. I had the opportunity to have a conversation with a group of wonderful individuals about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And afterward, one of the folks in the room approached me and we kind of chatted a little bit about the United States in particular being named a melting pot and and what that really means. And he said, I don't know that I necessarily like the analogy of a melting pot because it's not true. Uh, he's he said he thinks that he he likes to think of this nation at least as more of a stew, and I was inclined to agree with him. And we sort of like bantered back and forth about how um, stews are flavorful and that sort of thing. And so I thought I would continue that conversation here with you all about what it really means. And so when we consider the very official definition, if you will, of inclusion. And I'm, I'm consulting the dictionary, right? Which is, which is a, a, a vetted source generally. Um, inclusion is described in a couple of different ways. One, it's the act of including or the state of being included. There is um, also a science-based definition that describes inclusion or something included as a gaseous liquid or solid foreign body enclosed in a mass, like in a mineral. And then there is a more um, fitting definition for the conversations that we have in this space, particularly DEI, where inclusion is the act or practice of including and accommodating people who have historically been excluded typically because of their race, their gender, their uh, sexuality, or ability. And so when we say that we want to be inclusive, what we're saying, if we are being honest and true, is that we want to make space for people that have typically been marginalized. We want to make space for people who have been pushed off in corners or overlooked or whose... um, words or um, their very person, their anything that they contribute, their contributions to society have not been listened to, accepted, appreciated, utilized to their fullest extent. So that is what inclusion is supposed to mean. And then when we look at assimilation, Assimilation, in in my mind anyway, and in my estimation, um, is not like inclusion at all. So assimilation, um, by definition, is to 
absorb into the cultural tradition of a population or group or to make similar. And the challenge with assimilation um, is that while you can adopt the traditions um, and behaviors of a particular group or a population, you're not actually that group or population, right? And so you may be in, in assimilating, denying some of the truths about who you really are or denying or uh, maybe putting in a secondary place the cultural traditions that are true to you. And so sometimes I think when people talk about inclusion and they're talking about you know, making space and including other people, particularly marginalized groups, they are sometimes talking about it in the very narrow way of, yes, we are being inclusive so long as you assimilate to what the dominant culture is doing. So yes, we are being inclusive and we welcome you into our space so long as you dress the way that we think that you should dress or speak the way that the dominant culture speaks or wear your hair that way or practice the same religion or whatever those things might be. And that's where this gets to be problematic because if you're truly being inclusive, you are making space for people to be who they actually are, not an assimilated version, not a version that makes someone else comfortable, but the version of who they really truly are. And so rewinding back to my conversation that I had earlier today with that other person about the melting pot, and he was saying that melting pot is essentially a misnomer, I'm inclined to agree. I would say that at best, when it was phrased in context back when it was stated way back in the day, it was, I would say at best, an aspirational statement. And I think, and this is me again, trying to put a current day lens on something from so long ago, is the aspiration was that this would be a place where people could come together and kind of meld into this big group of folks all together in one sort of space coexisting and all that. Aspirational, but not actual. Because when you think about a melting pot, so for instance, for folks who have prepared or have eaten fondue, you are essentially using a, a pot over a flame to melt you know, cheese or chocolate or what have you for this, this fondue. And you may have big chunks of cheese you may even have different types of cheese in chunks, but once it starts to melt, it all kind of congeals into the same sort of thing. And it's kind of hard to taste the difference between the sharp cheddar versus the smoked Gouda when it's all melted together, right? And so that's what it, that's what a melting pot is. It, it, it puts things together and kind of blends and congeals until they all become the same. And that is essentially assimilation, right? Whereas when you think of like really good and awesome and amazing, amazingly flavorful food, you can often taste different hints and notes of different things. So it's, it's winter in Ohio where I am. So this is the time of year when my friends and I start talking about and cooking different soups and stews. And for some of my really amazing talented friends who I hope are listening. This is also the time of year when they cook gumbo. So actually they'll cook gumbo whenever, but I want them to cook gumbo this time of year. At any rate, I digress. 
soups and stews are really fantastic foods, right? We like them. They have different flavors and types across different cultures and and practices and skill levels by who's cooking it and all of that. But the thing about a good soup or a good stew is that you truly get a ton of different things in a pot. And each of these things has a different texture or flavor. But when they all come together, right, it makes for a very flavorful dish. But potatoes do not taste like carrots. Um, okra does not taste like crab meat, right? Um, corn does not take on the taste and the flavors of um, onion, you know, and, and whatever base you're using, be it a beef broth or a tomato base or what have you, those things all taste different. And they keep, by and large, their original flavor profile and that sort of thing and their texture and everything, even being in this pot with all these other things that are different. That to me, and based on the conversation that I had with the colleague earlier, that makes a little more sense um, if we're going to use a food analogy to talk about people interacting in space and really finding the ways to bring people together in one spot. So if you have an office, um, a full staff, or you're in a social setting or a neighborhood, the people in that neighborhood, the people in that office, the people in that social setting should still very much be their original selves of who they are, their most authentic selves of how they show up in spaces, you know, however they wear their hair, the clothes they choose to wear, um, the, the words that they use, the books that they read, the music they listen to, that is all unique to them. Um, even in some practices and, and cultural spaces, people dress very specifically because of their culture or their beliefs. And they should not have to stop doing that just because they're in a space where the dominant culture does something different. Um, there is no one way, I should say, for people to be who they are. And sometimes the focus is put so much on a dominant culture, depending on what that dominant culture is in the setting, um, that they forget that it's not necessarily helpful or beneficial for everyone. And so, so much time is spent um, contorting into someone or something that doesn't actually work for an individual. So for instance, um, I really enjoy sports. I like basketball. And if you look at the typical basketball player, especially in the professional realm and even college too, they tend to be tall people. They, they just are. It's kind of a, a byproduct or a part of the sport. They tend to be tall people. And so gauging by maybe the way that the, the seats are in a space where tall people are or where things are put on a shelf or the height of cabinets, or even just the basketball hoop itself, right? Whatever comes with being tall. I am not a tall person. So the things that I see that happen to relate or apply to tall people, um, those things don't work for me. And in, in a space where there is nothing but tall people, if I had the chance you know, like hang out in an, an NBA compound or something like that, um, back when they were in the bubble maybe, this stuff wouldn't necessarily work the best for me. Um, that would be that dominant culture though, the tall people. But those things would not be helpful and beneficial for me. In the United States, 
the dominant culture tends to be white and male. And so there are ways that white males may wear their hair or the way that they dress or the things that they find interesting or the way that they just move about in society that is not necessarily beneficial and helpful for everyone else. And so instead of trying to make someone conform to what the dominant culture is, what we can say is, well, this is who you are and this is how you show up in society. And because we are not a melting pot, but a great pot of stew or soup, we acknowledge the contributions, the flavor, the things that you bring to this to this society. We do not want to try to force you to make you like us. We instead are going to acknowledge who you are and move forward with respecting that. And so when we decide to not assimilate, but truly be inclusive and allow people to be who they are and make it comfortable for people to show up in space, this becomes what helps us when we're trying to get anything done, when we're trying to problem solve, when we're trying to retain um, employees, when we're trying to retain students. By making spaces more inclusive and not pushing assimilation so hard, this is something that we can, it, it has a good end result. Assimilation itself often causes losses. And one loss, I kind of alluded to it just now, that is a part of, or a loss that is a byproduct of assimilation is that we lose rich contributions um, from various people. Because when we only want one thing one way and we don't make space for other viewpoints, other cultural experiences, other lived experiences, recommendations and observations from people that don't look like us or who are not exactly like us, we miss out on the richness of learning about different types of people and having those experiences and what those folks can bring to the broader society. We also miss out on new ways of viewing the world because if we only have our singular lens and everything is built around how we expect to do and we're using this groupthink approach to life, we again miss out on new ways of viewing the world and problem solving and having new and different experiences. And here's the thing, even when you allow yourself to experience, observe, participate in activities that are not centered around you or dominant culture, one is that experience, but also you don't have to stay there necessarily. You are not being forced to abandon who you are because you're experiencing something new, but forcing someone to assimilate on the flip of that is that you are kind, they are kind of putting who they really are to the background. So if I spend all of my days making sure that my hair is straight, that I wear certain clothes, that I appear to be what the dominant culture approves of, at least in, you know, my neck of the woods, then sure, they get what they want out of me. I am spending many of my days not being my truest self because my hair grows out of my head curly and there are certain things that I just don't enjoy or find comfortable wearing. Whereas if a person in the dominant culture 
kind of abandoned assimilation and just talked to me about who I was and who I am and what that means, they have now learned something from me. They're not being forced to dress like me or try to wear their hair curly like me or anything like that. But they just got now a new experience that enriches their life. And then I'm also better because I'm not forcing myself to be someone I'm not or go to great lengths to assimilate in ways that are comfortable and not helpful. The other thing about assimilation is just by and large, it is boring. How many of us like eating the exact same thing every day or wearing the exact same thing every day? Listening to the exact same song every day, watching the exact same television show every day. Like that is mundane and that is boring. And so to me, that is what assimilation is. It it does not leave any space for anything that is interesting. The other thing is people will say, well, if everybody's doing their own thing and there's no rules to conform to or anything like that, it's just going to be pandemonium. It's going to be all kinds of crazy. I'm inclined to disagree. Really, I am. There will not be chaos and pandemonium if we don't push assimilation. There are social norms and societal agreements. Um, There are laws. That's a different podcast for another day, but there are laws. And if people are honest and operate with empathy and human respect, there will not be chaos and pandemonium because we are being inclusive and walk away from assimilation. As long as we are choosing as individuals and in our respective societies to not damage, be dangerous, or be harmful to others, it's possible for us to live and not assimilate to one way or one particular ideal groupthink dominant culture. It's totally possible. So very quick right? What are we supposed to do with this? We are supposed to not try to force everyone to fit one mold, not try to force everyone to be the way that we think that they should be, or to mimic what the dominant culture is in either our broader society or in an individual space. But rather we should, if we're being true about being inclusive, continue to learn more about other people, but also make space for those people to be who they are. So if someone comes in wearing some clothes that you're like, well, that's kind of different because you wouldn't do it. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that it's their way. If someone comes in with purple streaks in their hair, then so be it. Because as long as we have agreed to act with human respect and empathy and not do damaging, dangerous or harmful things to each other, then we can coexist just fine. And we won't be one big glob of melted cheese in a pot, but we will rather be a flavorful, complex, amazing stew, soup, whichever you choose to call it. And so with that, I encourage you to continue to explore inclusion and assimilation and continue to figure out how you can contribute to making more inclusive spaces as opposed to spaces where people are expected to come in and assimilate. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. And now it's time for one last thing.
for this episode's one last thing, I have chosen a quote by Dr. Bernice King. Dr. Bernice King is the executive director of the King Center in Atlanta that's named after her father, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The King Center came about because of Coretta Scott King, um, Bernice King's late mother and the wife of slain civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was intent on preserving his legacy. And so Bernice King stated that her father literally fought his entire life to ensure the inclusion of all people because he understood that we were intertwined and connected together in humanity. I believe that when um, Dr. Bernice King mentions the intertwining of people and the importance for inclusion, she is hearkening back to a quote from her father's um, letter from a Birmingham jail that he wrote in August, 1963. And in that letter, he states that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. I encourage you to spend some time learning more about Bernice King, but also, especially just a few days after um, the national celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to read his letter from a Birmingham jail and think about how that impacts how you will be more cognizant of your fellow humans and how you will commit to creating more inclusive spaces. Be sure to like and subscribe to Inscribing Inclusion on your favorite listening platform. Follow us on Twitter at InscribingPod and on Instagram at Inscribing Inclusion. And you can always email us at inscribinginclusion at gmail.com. Thank you.